Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Heavenly Father, as you speak to us today through your word, I pray for your empowerment, Father. I pray for your enablement upon this frail mind and frail body and frail voice, Father. Uh, would you fall and speak through me to your people that we all might be edified and you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Webster's defines morality as the principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. It's a system of principles and, and values concerning people's behavior that is generally accepted by a society or by a group of people. So there we know what the definition of morality is. But what does morality look like in our culture today? Words come to mind like confused, chaotic, worsening. It's inarguable that we live in a world characterized by moral confusion and that the standards for what is moral and, and what is immoral are constantly changing. We're not surprised that Americans continue to rate U.S. morals negatively and overwhelmingly agree that they're getting worse. A plurality of 47% of Americans currently rate U.S. moral values as poor. 37% as only fair. I don't know where these 16% people are, but 16% of the people evidently claim that our morals are good to excellent. I don't know about that. A survey by the Barna Group reveals that 8 in 10, 80% of American adults across age group, ethnic, socioeconomic, and political ideological lines, 80% express concern about our nation's moral condition. Again, we're probably not surprised to hear that. And then so many of the voices of our, of our time regrettably offer little in the way of help and hope, little in the way of, of solution to the moral issues of our, of our day. It seems like when they, when they speak, they, they only incite more controversy and confusion. Whether it's Elon Musk or Donald Trump or Joe Biden weighing in on the various hot-button moral issues of the day or the debates that, range, that rage among the talking heads on the so-called news channels, about moral issues such as abortion or social justice or, or gender or crime or immigration or, or Hollywood's continuing efforts to marginalize traditional Christian morality through film and television. These times can be, can be so very upsetting for us and frustrating for all of us. And still most Americans, and I'm sure all of us here this morning, think of ourselves as moral individuals with viewpoints on morality based on traditional Judeo-Christian values rooted in Holy Scripture. But I'm not at all sure that most people in our culture really understand what true morality is and what is its source. R.C. Sproul wrote, Morality is not just a matter of doing the right thing, but figuring out what the right thing is. Sometimes I think we've returned to the day of the judges where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Certainly in our time, we've seen biblical truths and principles erode and become marginalized. And along with that, the fading away of anything resembling traditional moral law. And it's gotten to the point where truly good is called evil and evil is called good. And it's been that way for a while. Some would argue that the idea of a moral law external to us 
may never have had secure foundations in our culture, but partly because of the decline of religion in the Western culture, this awareness is becoming more and more widespread. Our writer said, If you have no God, then your moral code is that of society. And if society is turned upside down, so is your moral code. Some say the moral decay we see is Today is attributable to a decline in religious attendance. According to a survey by Statista, the decline in attendance in churches and synagogues is at least partly to blame. Recent surveys show that only 24% of Americans attend every week, 9% almost once a week, 11% once a month, 25% seldom, 29% never attend at all. According to a recent Gallup poll survey, less than 47%, less than half of those polled are a member of a church, a mosque, or a synagogue. More and more we're seeing secular humanism. It's always been here, but more and more we're seeing secular humanism replace religiosity for many Americans. Secular humanism being the belief that mankind is capable of moral behavior apart from God. As Christians, we live under the sovereignty of God, who alone claims lordship over us. Christian morality, then, is theocentric, not man-centric. God's the center of all things. His character is, is the absolute standard by which questions of right and wrong are determined. I think we'd all agree that as a part of what it means to be moral, one must act in a moral manner. Now, of course, as I've noted, and it's obvious, isn't it? In our culture, the, defini the definition of morality has changed drastically in the last generation. The goalposts are moving, and they're moving quickly. But regardless of the standard for morality, being a moral person goes beyond moral behavior. That's a truth that we often overlook today because we're so busy defending and discussing and redefining and refining what constitutes moral and immoral behavior. As a society, we've, we've traditionally thought that it's possible to have a moderating effect, to have some kind of control over the conduct of, of folks through certain boundaries, whether it be laws or the mores and folkways of any culture. They, they serve to accomplish that, or at least we like to hope they do, think they do. But, beloved, we will never be able to transform an individual at the core, at the root of their morality in that way. Merely restricting what folks can do outwardly, whether it's through the law of common decency or whether it's through the legal system, cannot prevent immoral folks from doing bad things to other people. Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said, if, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line... Dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. He's right. Behavior is birthed at the core in that deep inner nature of an individual. You could say it's a matter of the heart. We're going to stand in just a moment and read chapter 5, verses 5 through 12. But before we do, I want to remind you that we stand truly to honor God's Word. We, we honor God's Word because we recognize the authority that it has over our lives. 
We honor God's Word because we've seen its efficacy. We've seen it work in our lives and produce righteousness and salvation even among ourselves and those that we know. So we truly honor God's Word as we stand today. Would you please do so? Let's begin in verse 2 of chapter 5. Matthew is speaking, and he writes, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Jesus begins to speak, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The reading of God's word will be blessed. Please be seated. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. And the point he is making here is that being right on the inside is what really counts. So what does it mean, first of all, to be pure of heart? Jesus has been dealing here in the Beatitudes with, with, with principles that affect every aspect, aspect of our lives. And we've seen this is, this is just no random sampling here of religious sayings that we have presented to us in the, in the Beatitudes. There's a logical sequence, and we're going to look at that again in just a few moments in this message. But here, in our text for today, we come face to face with one of the most sobering, I believe, and, and powerfully searching statements in all of Scripture. A, a statement that strikes at the core of what it means to be a Christian and to exhibit Christian behavior. It's a call to purity that promises a personal encounter with a holy God. Jesus doesn't give kudos to the intellectuals here. He doesn't applaud the attractive. He doesn't show appreciation to affluence or success. No, the heart, the heart of a person, that's the whole center of His teaching. We're reminded once again that the Christian faith is not merely a matter of doctrine or understanding or intellect. It's a matter of the heart. Every one of us are capable of pretending to be something we're not. We can look to folks around us like we're walking close to the Father, but when in reality we're far from Him. But listen, beloved, we can't fool the Father ever. We can't fool other folks for very long. We've looked at 1 Samuel 16, 7 a couple of times now, but it's so right on point. Let's do it again. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Say, The Lord looks at the heart. So the clear teaching here is that God doesn't take into account our outward appearance, even our outward behavior. He looks at what is really the key to our walk with Him, and that's the condition of our hearts. 
We read in Proverbs 21, 12, 2, excuse me, we, just, we justify our actions by appearances. God examines our motives. And as a pastor, this, this truth overwhelms me at times. I'm going to read a couple of uh, paragraphs from some notable men you recognize. And, and, and they're speaking to what to, and their application is to, is to ministers. But I want to suggest to you that the application can be for all of us, for we are all ministers in a sense. John MacArthur says, A man must take great pains to rid himself of a dichotomy between the man he seems to be in the pulpit and the man he is out of it. Spurgeon wrote, Let the minister take care that his personal character agrees with all aspects of his ministry, respects with his ministry. We have all heard the story of the man who preached so well and lived so badly that when he was in the pulpit, everybody said he ought not never to come out of it. And when he was out of it, they all declared he ought never enter it again. We do not trust those persons who have two faces, nor will men believe in those whose verbal and practical testimonies are contradictory. True ministers are always ministers. I would suggest to you true Christians are always Christians. You know, beloved, that breaks me. Because I know me. And as I look back over my years of pastoral ministry, this is perhaps my greatest single regret. For I know how often, try as I might, and I have tried, desire as I might, and I have desired, surely I've yet failed to be all that I needed to be for those for whom God has given me privilege of serving. God has always been searching for hearts that are fully devoted to Him. When David prayed for his son Solomon, a prayer that's recorded in 1 Chronicles 29, 19, his prayer was that his son might have a whole heart. That word there in the Hebrew means full heart, a complete heart, a perfect heart. In 2 Chronicles, we read this of King Rehoboam as he began his reign. It, in verse, 12, chapter, or chap, verse 14 of chapter 12 in Second Chronicles, we read, He did evil, speaking of King Rehoboam, because he did, net, he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Others may not always be able to discern the purity of our heart. And we can deceive others from time to time. We can even deceive ourselves with our busy activities for the Lord. But God knows. Beloved, God knows our hearts. So what does our Lord mean by pure in heart? Most theologians agree that the word katharos, translated in the Greek as pure, has several facets. One of them meaning without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. Jesus talks about the eye as the lamp of the body in chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if your eye is healthy, the word there literally means single. If your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So this purity Jesus is calling us to is then characterized by singleness. It's without hypocrisy. He's characterized by singleness. And another way of looking at this idea of purity is that it's without folds 
as in it's open. There's nothing hidden. You can describe it as sincerity, as single-minded or single-eyed devotion. One of the best statements regarding purity in the heart is found in Psalm 86, 11, where the psalmist writes, Unite my heart to fear your name. That's often the trouble with this, isn't it, beloved? A divided heart? When you get right down to it, doesn't that sum up any troubles we might have in our relationship with the Father? A divided heart? I mean, one part of us wants to know God and to worship God and to please God and to obey God, and another part wants something else, sometimes anything else. Paul expresses this so perfectly in Romans 7, 22 and 23, where he writes, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I love the law with all my heart, he's saying. But I see in my members another law, another power, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So, beloved, if we're to have a pure heart, it must no longer be divided. And the, and the psalmist got this. He understood his dilemma and he prayed for God to use his heart to fear the name of God. Make it one, he says. Make it single. Take out the pleats and the fold. Let it be whole. Let it be clear. Let it be sincere. Let it be entirely free from hypocrisy. Again, that Greek word, katharos, translated pure here in our text is where we get our English word catharsis, which simply means to make pure by cleansing. It's used in psychology and counseling. You know this already to refer to a cleansing of the mind and of the emotions. In Greek, the term was sometimes applied to, to milk or to wine that was untainted or, or metal which had been refined so that all the, the dross, all the impurities had been removed. So we might think of being pure as being unmixed, uncontaminated, without corruption, without tarnish, unalloyed, unmixed, so to be pure in heart, to further define that pray, phrase, carries with it that idea of being cleansed. No impurities, no contamination, no corruption, no tarnish. In Revelation 21, 27, John's talking about the people who will be admitted into the heavenly Jerusalem that's to come. And he says, But nothing unclean, impure, will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In Revelation 22, 14, and 15, we read, Blessed are those who wash their robes, another translation says, who do His commandments, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So nothing that is unclean, Nothing that is impure or is defiled in any way will be able to enter the heavenly Jerusalem. Maybe it's best understood if we express it by saying that being pure in heart means to be, and this sounds overly simplistic, but maybe being pure in heart means to be like the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who never sinned nor deceived anyone. To be pure in heart then is to be perfect and spotless and pure and entirely devoted, taking it a step further. To be pure in heart means that we have this undivided love with regards to God as our highest good and we're concerned only about loving God and obeying God. 
To be pure in heart, in other words, means to keep the first and greatest commandment. That we love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength and with all our mind. Being pure in heart means that we should live the glorified God with every thought, every word, every deed, and that should be the supreme desire of our life. It means that we desire God, that we desire to know Him, that we desire to love Him and to serve Him and to obey Him. And Jesus says that only those who are like that, who display that kind of pure heart, will see God. When you and I reflect seriously on our lives in this life, what do we find? If you're like me, you you no doubt find yourself coming up woefully short of the mark. Our motives are hardly ever unmixed. Many times our motives are selfish and self-centered rather than a single-minded devotion to God and a passionate yearning to please Him. Often we're wondering, what's this going to cost us? What's this going to mean for me? What's this going to, what do I stand to gain from this? And yet the call of Christ is clear. We're to be pure in our devotion to Him. So I want to ask you, beloved, how about you? As I ask myself, is my heart single in its devotion to God? So then how can we have a pure heart? How can we make our hearts pure? Well, the short answer is we can't. We can't. Only the Holy Spirit of God working in our lives by His grace can do that. We can try our whole lives to clean our heart, but by the end of our life it will be as black as it was at the beginning, maybe blacker. Our only hope, church family, is to put ourselves in His hands. And if we're in His hands, the process is is ongoing. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Does that mean we can just sit back passively and wait for that glorious day? But I want to suggest to you the answer to what we're to do to a great degree is found in the Beatitudes themselves. The first four that we've looked at already are the foundation for the second four. To put it another way, the second four Beatitudes are the result of walking in the first four. In order to become pure in heart, we've got to see our need. We've got to respond to our need. So let's walk through again that progression of those first four Beatitudes. As those who are poor in spirit, first of all, we see our sinfulness. We come to understand that we don't have a leg to stand on when it comes to our righteousness in and of itself. And that leads to mourning over sin. And, and, and the mourn means we repent with godly sorrow for our sin. Our hearts are broken before God. And then we become meek and tender before God because we have a more clear, a more true, a more accurate picture of ourselves. We've seen ourselves looking from God's perspective as something that's, that's truly detestable. And it's because of this that we feel this aching hunger and thirst for righteousness. We've seen that it's only the righteousness of God that satisfies. As we're filled with His righteousness, we begin to look at others differently, and our hearts are touched as we enter into their pain. And in mercy, we reach, we reach out to them, and, and in return, we receive mercy. Beloved, this is the foundation we must lay if we hope to be pure in heart. To put a theological term on it, we're really talking about sanctification here. This is what Jesus meant when He said, Take up your cross daily and follow Me. It's seeking God with all of our heart. 
is coming to God like David and praying, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. It's desiring God more than all else. So then what is the result of a pure heart? The reason we must become pure in heart is that only those who are will see God. God reserves closest fellowship, you see, with Himself, with those whose hearts are unmixed in their devotion to Him. Let me illustrate it like this. It's kind of like tuning in a radio. Heart purity is what tunes our spiritual receivers to the frequency of God's transmission. Uh, Radio stations are assigned frequencies on the AM and the FM bands. If a station is on FM band at 98.3 and you're tuned in to 108.3, there's no way you're going to receive that transmission. You must be tuned in to the correct frequency of the station to which you want to receive, to which you want to listen. Getting our hearts right with God tunes us into Him. And when we're tuned into Him, we enjoy the fruit of catching a glimpse of His glory, a vision of His majesty. That's the promise to all who are pure in heart. If our hearts are pure, we will see God. I'm not sure how much this promise is fulfilled in the here and now, but there is a sense. There's a sense in which there is a vision of God we catch, we do catch while we're in this world. As children, we can see, as His children, we can see Him in a sense that those who are not believers can't. We look at the wondrous beauty of nature and we recognize His hand at work and we give Him glory. We look at the heavens above. We say, there's the glory of God on display. We see Him in the events of history. We recognize His hand at work and we give Him glory. But this is a vision possible to the eye of faith that those who do not know Him cannot sense. And then there's a seeing in the sense of knowing Him, a sense of, of, of feeling He's near, knowing He's near because He's promised to be near, and of enjoying the, the comfort of His presence. Who among us cannot recall moments when we've been filled with a sense of His promised presence? You remember we're told of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11 that he endured as seeing Him who is invisible. I'll paraphrase that for you. He had his eye on the one no one can see, and he kept right on going. That's part of what I'm talking about here. And that's something that's possible for us here and now. Blessed indeed are the pure in heart. Imperfect as we are, we can claim that even now we're seeing God in that sense. We're seeing Him who is, who is invincible. But of course, there's nothing compared to what it's going to be like when we truly come face to face with our God and King. We truly do now see in a way that we could not see before we came to know Him, but it's, it's still pretty much a mystery. But one day, one day we're going to see face to face. John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, 
And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Surely the most amazing thing that's ever been said to man, that you and I, such as we are, harassed and hemmed in by all the problems and predicaments of this world around us, are going to one day on that great getting up morning see our Father face to face. If we could wrap our minds around this promise and truly understand its significance, it would change everything about the way we live our lives. Beloved, you and I are destined for the audience chamber of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Do you believe this? Do you believe this is true of you? Do you realize that the day is coming when you and I are going to see our Father face to face? Surely, surely the moment that we grasp this, everything else fades into oblivion. You and I are going to enjoy the eternal and glorious presence of our Father God. Read the book of Revelation and just listen in as I do. At the redeemed of the Lord, praise Him and ascribe glory to Him. In Revelation 5, 12 and 13, we read, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And in chapter 15, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And then in Revelation 19, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are just and true. Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. The blessedness, the, the, the glory, the sheer delight is, an, is inconceivable. It's, it's beyond our imagination. And we who are His children are destined for that. Paul says, I did not consider the sufferings of this present time to be worth the glory that is to be revealed to us. Jesus says that the pure of heart will see God and nothing less than that. And that means purity is a prerequisite for seeing God. The impure are neither granted admittance to His presence, nor are they awed by the glory of His holiness, nor are they comforted by His grace. Jesus' point is the same in Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone, and then strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, blessed are the holy, for they shall see God. There, there is a real purity and a real holiness which, which fits us to see the King of glory. And of course, if you're like me, that, that, that speaks to every sensitive soul to cry out with the words, who can say I've made my heart clean 
Who can say, I'm pure from my sin? It leads us to cry out with the disciples, Who then can be saved? And Jesus gave them and us the answer. Without, with men it is impossible, and with God all things are possible. In other words, beloved, God does the work. He, he makes purity of heart possible for us because of His sanctifying work in our hearts. And then we walk in, as we walk in faith, we maintain purity. We cultivate purity, but again, only by His grace, it worked within us. By His grace, we seek that gift, praying with David, creating me a clean heart, O God. And we continually look to Christ, who gave Himself for us to purify to Himself a people. And the response of our hearts to God's act of creation and the response of our hearts to God's act to Christ's act of sacrifice is a single-minded faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As the Scripture in Acts 15, 9 says, God made no distinction between us and them, but purified their hearts by faith. So then, beloved, God is the one who does the work. God is the one who purifies the heart and the instrument with which he cleans and purifies our hearts is the faith he gave us to begin with beloved let us trust in the Lord with all our heart let us will this one thing and the promise is we will see God blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God Heavenly Father, once again, you have spoken to us so powerfully through this short and simple beatitude. And like all of Scripture, Father, when we take it to heart, it touches our heart and it convicts us of the ways in which we taint this work you are doing in our hearts to make us like your son Jesus Christ I pray for each one of us here Father as we reflect upon what it means to have a pure heart and what is the result of a pure heart Father what a glorious glorious promise that we would put ourselves in a position every single day through the simple steps of devotion like reading our Bible and praying avoiding temptation seeking to serve and to obey in, in every way possible, Father, we put ourselves in that place to where you can continue that work of purifying our hearts for truly, Father, we long to see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.